afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of It's Easy Sun. It's a new year. It's our first interview for this year, and I am beyond humbled to have joining me today a legend in track and field, a gentleman that I've met over the last, I guess, 19 months, and we've had some conversations over time, and most importantly, a gentleman that has a storied history that is the epitome of what we try to do with this show, and that is to inspire young people to see those who have gone before us and to learn something and glean from them what we are um, trying to achieve in our own lives. So it's a special day. So I put on my Morehouse um, shirt, make sure Morehouse is represented well, because we are going to be talking with a prestigious Morehouse alum today. Ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, I welcome to the podcast, our first visual podcast, none other than Dr. Edwin Moses. Dr. Moses, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks. I'm glad to be on uh... It's easy, son. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, as I said just now, I'm extremely humbled that you would join me. And as you know, I made a transition from Georgia to Orlando over the Christmas break and just took a little bit of time to get settled and, and reach back out to you. And I was, I'm so humbled that you um, are here with us today. So let's just get started, as we always do every, every week. We don't have a set agenda uh, based on the questions that I ask open-ended questions, and as you speak, I'll have deriv derivative questions from there, and from those derivative questions, an hour will zoom right by. And I want to say something funny up front. Uh, my background actually has an error in it. I didn't notice this till just before we were getting on. It says, it's easy, son, quick, making things difficult. But considering who the guest is today, uh, Olympic champion, four-time world record holder. I think quick is appropriate for us today. So Mr. Dr. Moses, um, let's just jump right in. So who is Dr. Edwin Moses, his early years? How did he get started? And what drives Edwin Moses today over all the accomplishments you've had and where you are just today as we're speaking today? Well, uh, I, I would not exist had I not gone to Morehouse College. I was... Uh, very lucky. I was a uh, quite quite the nerd in high school. In uh, high school, uh, I was very very interested in science, uh, all types of science. So I'm I'm basically a scientist that uh, actually turned track and field into a hobby and went to the Olympic level uh, while attending Morehouse College. Uh, at the time, a lot of people don't know, but uh, we had no track, no stadium, no field. So I was a, a, a track bandit. I used to go break into tracks and jump over fences and did that for pretty much five years. But um, I initially came to Morehouse because my mom was a school teacher and my dad was an elementary school principal as well. They were both in education. And uh, my, my dad was a Tuskegee Airman, by the way. You can, you can yep. see his picture up, yep, yep. up there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, my mom went to a, a conference uh, of uh, curriculum and advisors out in uh, San Francisco one summer and she met a woman by the name of Charlie Mae Edwards, uh, who told her about this dual degree program uh, at Morehouse College. And being that I was very interested in science, I mean, I was very heavy in science in, uh, in, uh, in uh, high school. Um, I applied to Morehouse. I had done a project in the fourth grade on Dr. Martin Luther King. Wow. Um, uh, uh, during the summer, I had to read 10 books. So I did a project on Dr. King during the summer. 
and applied to Morehouse, uh, got rejected. Well, I was, wasn't uh, eligible for scholarships at any other schools because my track and field career hadn't taken off and uh, I was not quite near the top of the heap. So um, I thought about going to Ohio State, which was, uh, was 70 miles away from Dayton, but I thought that that was much too big of a school for me. And I applied to two other schools. No one was offering me a track and field scholarship. So I went to Morehouse on a full, uh, for a full scholarship for uh, the dual degree program uh, in uh, math, physics, and eventually I switched my major to physics and um, had a great, uh, great time at Morehouse. It, it was, had, I, had I gone to any other school, it could have been Ohio State, UCLA, or USC with the best track team in the world. I never would have gone to, to Morehouse College because of the, the environment at the time. Uh, where I was as a young 17-year-old when I went to college at the time. It was only that one place at that one type at that one time that really made me the track man that I am today. So I was very fortunate that I went to a HBCU. Back when HBCUs weren't popular and no one even knew what the, what the acronym meant. Right, right. No one even knew what an HBCU was. And even, even a, a couple of years ago, even a lot of African-Americans don't know what HBCUs are. You know, it's just that acronym that uh, and those schools that, you know, you you might want to avoid. But I think we, we, we have to find a way to turn that around, because obviously, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the top black intellectuals, politicians, uh, Ph.D. scientists, uh, formerly sports people. If you look at the NBA and NFL from years ago, uh, any of the Hall of Fames, a lot of those guys, uh, you know, had no choice but to go to an HBCU back then unless you were lucky. So I'm proud to be a Morehouse man. And that's what that's what made me uh, who I am today and a lot of other people as well. Wow. That, you know, you just said something that's rather interesting. I would never have realized until you said it. Your track career started in college. Most people get to college already accomplishing much at the high school level. But if you could take us back a little bit, you mentioned your dad is a was a Tuskegee Airman. What was it like growing up in the Moses household and having that type of history just resident right in your household? What was it like and, and family structure and, and things like that? Well, I'll, I'll start out keeping it light. You know, my dad, he also was a, was a, was a Kappa. And <laughs> okay. those, were, those were the days when they used to swing the paddle heavily. <laughs> so he had a Kappa paddle in, in the closet. And uh, he had the army belt for corporal punishment as well. So wow, wow. <laughs> my, dad, my dad was a dreaded, um, a dreaded man around around town because they uh, really disciplined a lot of kids, not physically, but mentally and taught them uh, uh, how to be young adults in a, you know, while living in, in, uh, in, in the, what they used to call the ghetto uh, where, where his schools were, my mom's schools were. So um, very, very disciplined. You know, we, we did things to military prece uh, precision, had to do work. You know, we learned how to work as young kids, uh, you know, went to church every weekend. He was a deacon. And uh, my mom became actually the first deaconess of the, a church that started back in 1890. She was the first woman. Um, so, you know, we grew up on the edge of a park as, as uh, little boys, had to learn how to fight. I've been in so many fights in my life, uh, had to learn how to protect ourselves. And uh, for me, I used to get bullied a lot when I was small because my dad was an elementary school principal. Mm. And then we, we moved from one school to an adjacent neighborhood. And he was a, 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 a teacher, a substitute teacher down there. And you he used to have to spank some of the kids back then. <laughs> so when I came, 
Uh, those kids were like, oh, that's Mr. Moses, son. let's get him. <laughs> uh, fortunately for me, I lived, there was a park between my school and the house and the park was uphill. So I used to get out of school early. The school was out at three. I used to say, teacher, can I go to the bathroom at five till three and go run to my locker, get my stuff, grab my little saxophone and start making it up the hill. And it, 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 it's like, um, it, it, it could be made for a movie today with a little kid who gets bullied. The other kids are busted out the door, chasing them up the hill. Wow. I was that kid, but I never got caught. And when I did get caught, I always had to fight. And, uh, you know, I had to fight my way out of it and fight my way up, up the hill at home. And wow. uh, my, 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 my house was west. I used to get out of school and go east and then go north and then go west. <laughs> And, and I used to run. I used to have to run home a lot, got chased and, you know, rocks thrown at me in the works, but I had to fight my way out of it. And, and uh, my dad bought us boxing gloves, you know, when he realized what was happening. I had two other brothers. He bought us boxing gloves and we used to sit there and practice boxing like two, three hours a day, put the kitchen timer on two minutes and go for it. Round <laughs> with three guys. <laughs> well, you have two other brothers, so I would imagine two other brothers, yeah. that was a very fun household. So let me ask you this question. Was all the running up the hill, running east, going north, then west, was that preparation or background work for track and field? That and was background work. That was background work for an eight-year-old going uphill. And I, <laughs> I had an alto saxophone. I had to drag that. Yeah. And I was, I was a tiny kid. I was one of the smaller kids because I went to school one year earlier because my birthday came right on the cusp. So I went to, the, to school kindergarten when I was four years old. So I was always one of the younger kids and I was always smaller. Uh, uh, at one point, my older brother was here, my younger brother was here, and I was down there. <laughs> so, uh, oh, in, in the pecking order, you were, you were, you were in the, the third son? You were in I the middle. middle. I was in the middle, but I was smaller than my younger brother. Right. I got to high school. He, he grew a little bit more than me. But I, I, I was good in track in high school, but not really that good. I was fourth in the city in the 440. Uh, we had guys running like 47.8, 47.9, 47.5 on, on, on dirt tracks yep. in high school back in 1970 and 71. Uh, I ended up uh, doing very well in the high hurdles. I think I was second in the high hurdles my junior or senior year. And then uh, my senior year, I had a muscle injury. I won what they call the Dayton Relays, which is the big regional week meet. Uh, I think I was like third in the four, in the in the quarter, and and I won the high hurdle event. Surprisingly, that was my first victory. And then that same night, I injured a hamstring, so that knocked me out for the whole season. So I never really got a chance to shine. And the guys that I beat in the high hurdles that night were one and one, two, and three in the state. They were all at the state meet, and I had beaten them oh, wow. early in the season. Wow. So I never really, uh, I never had a chance to um, do well in track. But I did do well as a triple jumper because that was my meet that I did independently with the club, the, 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 the kiddie track club that I was with, and they didn't have in high school. So I was 45, one and a half, my junior year in high school uh, at a, uh, not the man's, Ohio Relays, it was Ohio Relays. So I won that event. So I knew I was good, but I was just, I didn't have the, 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 the muscle mass, I was small, but I, I really loved track and field. And I went to Morehouse and essentially walked on, I, I essentially walked on. And uh, as I'm listening to you, I'm actually surprised, you know, you, you won the state meet and even though you hurt, hurt your hamstring or all these other things came into play, 
that no one saw your potential for a scholarship. That's interesting to me. No, no, there were so many guys ahead of me in terms of time. For example, my, my best uh, quarter in high school, I only ran 51-3. Really? My, my, her, my high hurdles was 15-1, but we had guys uh, that were running like 14-2, 14-3. So that 15-1, I could have gone down to, you know, 14-3, 14-5 my, my year, and that would have put me, you know, in there at the state level. Right. But quarter, uh, I only ran 51-3. I just, I was just too small. I mean, now, all pictures of me, I was, I was a tiny guy. I, I was like Urkel with big glasses, <laughs> all, uh -huh, uh, ugly track shoes with high socks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's interesting because I know a little bit of your background from our conversations and a lot of people might not know this, but you are a, an academician, you are a scholar. Yeah, yeah. You are a scholar, you, you a physics, physics degree, uh, moved on MBA and all the work that you've done. So if I was to, one of the things I always try to reach out to is student athletes. This, this term student athletes for some seems to be an oxymoron. So when they hear someone like a Dr. Edwin Moses and that starting out in high school, he was not you know top, top flight, but he had that academic underpinning as well. Can you talk a little bit about the term student athlete and what that means to you, given your, your, your accomplishments in both areas? Well, in my family, there was no such thing as a student athlete. If you weren't a student, you weren't gonna be <laughs> I remember days, if you, if you, for example, bring home a C or get a D on a paper, your mom and dad get a call and ask you what happened. No intramurals, no track practice, no going to the park, nothing. You, you're gonna be home and have to study. So academics was, was, was a really big issue in my family. In high school, uh, between the eighth and ninth grade, I took computer science. They had the first computer science, one of the first offered in the company country because we were located right near Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and they had a big computer out there. So we had a terminal uh, at Fairview High School where I attended and I went to summer school between the eighth and the ninth grade and took computer science and then um, and then the following year, uh, I think 69, I took general science uh, in summer school. So uh, I always went to summer school and that was the year that, uh, that uh, Apollo uh, landed on the moon. That oh, was wow. the year that, that happened. So we were really big on that. It's also the year that my dad broke, broke down and got a big Magnavox color TV with the big <laughs> antenna on top of the house. We were able to see it. Everybody got around the TV in our house and saw you know, the men walk on the moon in color. I'll, I'll never forget that. All the kids, uh, you know, we had one of the first color TVs. But, so I took general science, two years of biology, two years of chemistry, a year of physics and computer, uh, uh, all in high school, four years of math, five years of math in high school, all in high school. So I was straight scientist, um, uh, did uh, science shows and whatnot. So I was a serious science. I even took a year of science at Central State uh, for honors kids. They, they took some of the best kids in the state and uh, took us out to Central State. We actually lived on campus for a summer along with another one of my classmates that actually came to Morehouse, Dr. Leroy Penix, who's a neurologist. Mm -hmm. uh, we took a chemistry lab where we were making organic compounds and things like that with the best kids in the state. But one of the, one of the most important things that happened to me, I didn't know it at the time, my second year in high school, 
uh, I took two years of French in high school. My second year, I really, uh, one of my best buddies, his father was a doctor, African-American. He went to the University of Iowa on basketball, but we were getting very, very good in French to the point where we were speaking French to each other all day long. Wow. We, we, we convinced our parents to send us on a field trip that costs, and that was a lot of money back then. I think it was $306 uh per person and we he convinced his mom and dad and i convinced my mom and dad and they let us go to paris on this field trip <laughs> in 1970 march of 1971 wow and uh let's see 1969 march of 71 and we had so much fun over there and that's i went to uh gallery lafayette the big uh the big department store in paris and bought my first pair of adidas uh, and, 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 uh, that was my first really good pair of track shoes. They were, they were, uh, those, uh, 10 flats and they were white with green stripes made out of leather. You've probably seen them before. I've seen them. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, that was my first pair of track shoes. And we promised each other that, uh, that we were going to come back to Europe. Didn't know how, but we were going to come back to Europe. And it just turned out that five years later, I became Olympic champion and I've been going back to Europe since 1977 yeah. you know, forever. So that was like uh, one of those uh, ubiquitous moments that happened. It really changed my life. Yeah. Well, we're going to, we're going to get to your work because the amount of traveling you do, I, I, I just get exhausted thinking about how much you travel, but Morehouse, and you started out talking about Morehouse and the HBCU experience. I'm a Howard grad and I've spent time working at Johnson C. Smith, United Negro College Fund and um, Morehouse. I worked at Morehouse, obviously. Yeah, yeah. In your mind, given how you started out the conversation and what you see happening in our nation today, um, and I've asked this question of Dr. Thomas, the current president of Morehouse and a couple of other folks, as you look at the landscape and what you garnered or, or, or got from Morehouse, do you see this HBCU, this acronym not many people understand, their relevance in our society today? Was it more impactful then when you were coming up or is it just about the same today or even greater? I think it, it was definitely impactful then. My mom and dad, my dad went to Bethune-Cookman, started oh, there. Wow. Okay. Uh, my, and then he's trying, he went to the war in World War II. He ended up being a chauffeur for Mrs. Bethune, but Mrs. Bethune. And actually he was sent to Tuskegee to join the army uh, because she was closely associated with Eleanor Roosevelt. So the story goes, he didn't talk a lot about it, but the story goes that he used to chauffeur, take Mrs. Bethune around, be a driver for her. And she recommended for him to go to, to Tuskegee because the, the, the guys that they were selecting were physicists, chemists, biologists, mathematicians. It was right. a very specialized uh, group of people that were even able to go in and be pilots and do aviation and intelligence and mechanics and things of that nature. So it's been important for, and then I've got one, two, let's see, one, two, two cousins, three, three aunts and uncles that went to Tuskegee. Uh, a couple of them did master's work at Columbia. Uh, I've got another cousin that went to Howard. So we've, our family is inundated with HBCU uh, people. Uh, and my mom and dad's generation, of course, you didn't have too many choices. Right. You weren't going to go to University of Kentucky back then. Mm -hmm. uh, you weren't going to go to University of South Carolina or Duke or these schools. Um, 
in my generation, it was, uh, you know, I came up, uh, you know, during the civil rights, during the 60s and the 70s. I'm a kid of the 60s uh, and, and 70s. So it was very, very important uh, to us because it gives you that real protected space mm -hmm. where you can perform academically. You don't have to worry about, about, about the social setting, uh, uh, racist teachers, uh, racist students, or living in, in basically almost like living in a foreign country. Right. Because in the 60s, from, from the students that I speak to today, that my colleagues that went to Ohio State and went to law school and went to these you know, University of Cincinnati and these other schools, they, they describe it today uh, as though college was something that came and went in their life. They really didn't have a, a, an affinity, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, an affinity community, and it was always a struggle to try to keep each other from getting flunked out. Just to be frank with it, they were always trying to get rid of the best students. My brother went through it at University of Cincinnati, where he was in the, in the uh, business school when, when they first started letting the top African-American students in. And I think he said there were like 12 or 15 and only three or four of them made it. And they were told in no certain terms that, you know, we're going to get you out of here by one way or another. Oh. And, they, and they discouraged a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, today, it's even more important together. Look at look at the levels of leadership that we have today, just in politics, in journalism. If you look on TV, you see HBCU people all the time in journalism. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Vice President Harris from uh, from uh, from uh, Howard. Uh, we've got uh, Cedric Richmond from Morehouse. Tons of uh, probably quite a few other congressmen and senators. We've got uh, Jay Johnson from Morehouse, who was the Home Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, and a lot of people behind the scenes. You know, Raphael Warnock now. Raphael Warnock, yeah, who ju we just got elected uh, down here in Georgia. So, um, the the HBCUs are really uh, firing on all cylinders right now. We're really beginning to show, and people are beginning to understand that uh, these people just don't come out of nowhere and that they've had a chance to really, uh, for the roots to grow very deeply, you know, within their soul and their spirit and to become uh, uh, better people. I mean, had I not gone to an HBCU and we had no track, no field, jumping fences. And from between my freshman year and my junior year, I became an Olympic champion because I was in an atmosphere that allowed me uh, to expand my mind, uh, go beyond physically and mentally and do something that, uh, I probably had like a realistically three or four chances out of a thousand for that to happen to me realistically. Mm -hmm. And I, and I made it and maintain, maintain that for years. So, you know, the HBCUs are, are very relevant today. And I'm hoping that, um, that uh, with the new administration and we're able to, uh, to get some, some more funding, uh, not only to do academics and scholarships, but also for infrastructure. And, uh, and, and, and I hope that one day we're able to build back, the football programs and the basketball programs and, and get some assistance and attract some of the students that go to some of the majority schools mm -hmm. that never graduate and uh, never really reach their potential. So that's one of the things that I wanna see before I, before I leave this earth. I wanna see a, a, a return to HBCUs for sports. Right. Well, it's interesting because um, you've laid it out so well. Um, as I said, I'm a Howard grad and that was a family to me especially me being a foreigner from Jamaica, um, just being on that campus was like an incubator, a cocoon, if you will, where your expectations were that you will develop. But I wanna, I wanna shift a little bit and now talk a little bit about your legendary track and field career. 
So you get to Morehouse and your discipline around your training habits, your diet and everything is well known. But I'm still intrigued by getting from 51 in the flat 400 to eventually running 4702, I believe it was, yeah. uh, for a world record. With hurdles. With hurdles. <laughs> I'm talking about 51 with no hurdles. With no all. hurdles, that's right. <laughs> that even makes it that even makes it more interesting because there was, there was no hurdles. There was there. no hurdles. I think your your it your first test in the in the, the flat four is like 45, six or something. But can you talk to us a little bit about the discipline that you had and how that propelled you to becoming uh, Olympic champion, world champion, and you, you had I call it the triple nine because. You didn't lose a race for nine years, nine months, nine days. I think that's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and what was that like? What was that period of your, your life like being basically unbeatable? Well, my freshman year, I was kind of walking on. I had, a, I had a rough first semester. My dad didn't even want me to run track. And really? uh, oh. I was uh, I, halfway on the track team and halfway not. I went out and worked out with the track team on some days. Other days I worked out on, on my own. I had terrible shin splints, uh, but on the team, the important thing, which is why I got to where I was, uh, my freshman year, we had a guy named Maurice Burkett from Alabama who was running 46-2 and he won the state in Alabama. We had a guy named, what's his name? Not Rodney Strong. His name was Strong. He, he was like first or second in the state. He was from the city of Alabama, uh, Georgia from, from Atlanta. He was an 800 meter guy, second best in the state if he didn't win the state. We had Steve Price, who's my dear friend to this day from Warrensville, Ohio. He won the state in, uh, in uh, the, I think, uh, Division uh, 2A in, in Ohio. He was running like 14-3, 14-4, 14-2 in the high hurdle. So we had three state champions. And, uh, and then we had Audley Mackel from Chicago, who was a distance runner. Chuck Cherry came in a year or two later. He was a high jumper who brought in a, a pole vaulter from Daytona Beach. Uh, we had a very good group of guys who, who, who loved track and wanted to run. So I was not one of the top guys, but I was surrounded by top guys. And then we had, uh, for example, Audley Mackle. He was into biology and chemistry, always wanted to be a doctor. We used to always talk about training, physiology, conditioning. So we put together a, a, a training program uh, to supplement what we were doing uh, in the afternoons with the coach. We started running out to the waterworks, running on the streets. Uh, we started running at Adams Park at the golf, golf course during uh, uh, preseason, uh, September, October, we would go to the golf course every day, carpool out there and have had like a two and a half mile course and had a big hill to run up. So we started concentrating on conditioning, uh, uh, we, we began to really uh, worry about diet because the food at Morehouse was not the best during that time. So we always had to have, you know, additional uh, supplemental food, had to learn how to cook and supplement our food. Um, and so we had that kind of atmosphere where we, we acted as though we were at UCLA or any other school. <laughs> we just didn't have the resources, right, but we right. had the brain power and we had the support. So um, my sophomore year, uh, which was a year before the Olympic Games, at uh, I had improved. I had grown quite a bit then. I think I I, I was probably like five five eleven, maybe one hundred and thirty pounds. And I came into I came into uh, my junior year in high school, senior year. Uh, 
I was five, seven, 117 pounds. So I wow. wasn't too much bigger than that when I, when I came to Morehouse. Wow. Um, um, and I grew like uh, four, what would that be? Four, four to six inches and put on probably 30, 40 pounds in those first two years, mm. just naturally. And uh, my end of my sophomore year, we ran, we had the conference SIAC down at Tuskegee. And uh, I ran the 440. I, I, I won the conference in 47.5. I ran the high hurdles. I think I ran like a, maybe a 13.8 or 13.9, won that event uh, and participated on the 4x4 relay. And so that was, that was 1975. Now what happened then, uh, during those two summers, I was working up in Philadelphia uh, for a steel company called Luke and Steel company as an internship through the dual degree program. So I was, during the summer, I was working out at Franklin Field every day after work. I go to Franklin Field at least four days a week and do my workout. So I continue when, when, when school was out in mid-May, I continue running all the way through August, running track meets up and down the Eastern uh, Seaboard in Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, running relays and just practicing every day. So 1976, which would have been my junior year at high school, the year in which I did go to the Olympics at the Florida Relays, which was uh, March 26 uh, in 1976, 26th, 27th, I believe it was that weekend. Um, uh, because I put in a really good cross country season, I was getting stronger, had more meat on me. Um, I was about six, one and a half and 160 pounds by then. So I had put on like 45 pounds, you know, in, in, in two years, I put on 45 pounds and grown from five, seven to six, two, almost that's five inches. So I, you know, grown up and matured and caught up with everyone else. So that first meet at the Florida relays, uh, the coach, uh, coach Lloyd Jackson, who, uh, who was our, our transitional coach at Morehouse, uh, knew that I was good at the quarter and knew that I was really good at the high. So he said, why don't we throw you in the 400 hurdles? So he, he told them that I ran like a 51-1 for the hurdles, put that on the scratch seat, the entry street, and uh, talked to Jimmy Carnes, who was the, coach, the head coach at Florida, and said, get him in there. I think he can do something. So I went from, I had run it one, once before that. But anyway, on that first race, on that, uh, I think it was a Saturday morning, Friday afternoon, I ran the quarter. I was in I was in a really seated heat of the 440. They put me out in lane nine, and I ended up second with a 46-1. Wow. So I dropped from 47-5 to 46-1, first big meet of the season. Then on the Saturday morning, I ran the 400 hurdles. I think it was like <laughs> 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm out for the 400 hurdles. And uh, I went from, I had probably run once before, maybe a 53 or 54. I ran a 50.1, which qualified me for the, uh, for the uh, Olympic trials. Wow, wow. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, it was the second fastest time uh, that had been run that year all, all over the world. Also that, that 46.1, the qualifying mark was 46.5 or something. So I had qualified for the quarter for the open 400 and the 400 hurdles on a Friday and a Saturday, first big meet of the year. Uh, and then on the, in the afternoon, I ran the high hurdles. The qualifying mark was 13, I, th I think it was 13.9 or something. I ran like a 13.6 or, so, or 7, something like that. So I qualified for three Olympic events in, in two days. And then I had to pick. 
then I had to pick. But it was just growing up and being at Morehouse and running up and down Adams Park and camaraderie with the guys and you know being an academic and thinking about track and field. So I was in the right place at the right time. And then uh, once I noticed that once I beat someone, I used to have to, I always lost. I was never one of those people that was first. But once I started chipping my way up the ladder and once I beat these guys, I just primed my mind. I said, I beat this guy last week. He's never gonna beat me again. So I went to work and practice and took it very seriously. Uh, and I, I convinced myself that if, if I'm able to catch up, because I was way behind some of these guys and finally get to their level, that I wasn't gonna let them beat me again. And that's the attitude that I needed to, to take me to the top, even without a track, no even, track. Even no without a track. And now the track at Morehouse is, is named after you and yeah. there's some, in, some not good things on the way dealing with that track. But I wanna ask you a question. I, I know a, a hurdle coach or a former hurdler who coaches the 2015 world champion, Daniel Williams. His name is Lennox Graham. And when I was at Johnson C. Smith, um, Mr. Graham left Jamaica. He was coaching my high school in Jamaica, Kingston College, which, you know, he, he won the championship there. That's a big meet, right, for high school. Yeah, yeah. And um, he came to Johnson C. Smith and started this track program. I used to go out there and watch him. And he used to always say X number of steps between the hurdles, both the short hurdles, sprint hurdles, and the long hurdles. Now, you are known for hitting 13 steps. How is that? Is that normal or is, I'm not a hurdler, so is that normal or is that something? Because most hurdlers will take probably 14 to 15 steps. Right. But you were doing it in 13 steps. Right. Partially it was because, number one, I, had, I just have long legs. I have like a 37-inch inseam and I'm 6'2", oh. so that's like 50%. They used to call me 50-50, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also because we did that cross country and I used to run up those hills, I learned how to really take advantage of the length of my stride and, 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 and use my arms and have power. So I had the, not only the speed, I used to work on speed, but I used to run a lot of thousands and 600s and 500s. So I had power and I wasn't afraid to, 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 to train for power and practice. And, and by doing that, I was able to, uh, I ran 13 steps the first time I ever ran the, the, uh, ran the hurdles. That was just my natural stride. I have a very long stride and uh, not afraid to exercise it and, and not afraid to run out of power. So it was just that combination of, of uh, hitting those hills and running up hills and, you know, running, you know, two, 300 miles a year across country, you know, in the mornings and at night, you know, after practice, that's, that's how I got the power. So and since you said you're a tall athlete, I, I have to go here before we transition. So when you see like a Usain Bolt at 6'2", I think he's taller than 6'2". He's about 6'4 and a half, 6'5". 6'4 and a half, I think. So with your technical understanding from your own training habits and your style of running, you also being a physicist and uh, understanding mechanics and things of that nature, do you see another... Usain Bolt in the future, or he was just someone that's just super special? Well, there were, there were guys of his stature even before him. If you look back, uh, Dr. Delano Merriweather, the guy that used to run with the swimming trucks that went to, uh, I believe, University of Maryland. And he came out and ran nine flat in 100. He was about 6'3". Uh, we had guys like Steve Williams, Steve Riddick. They were 6'3", six, 6'4", six, six, big, tall guys. Uh, 
but I think I think Bolt had the 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 the, the best solution mechanically. Um, and I did the same thing in the hurdles. I get out and and I get out of the blocks really really hard because I have to in order to hit my excuse me 19 steps for the hurdle where everyone else is taking 21. Right. Uh, I started taking 20 and then I I I think I started taking 21, but I was using the other leg. Then I flipped legs, moved it to 20. And then when I got stronger, I used the same leg or either flip legs again in the starting block. And I was able to take 19. Wow. So no one else, uh, very few people are taking 19, but I built up so much speed so quickly. And, and then after that, I could use my stride, you know, my stride to really get to the speed where I can make, get to 13. And then I can back off and just kind of float just by lifting my knees and using body mechanics for the next two thirds of the race. And then at the end, I just start powering up again. So that's essentially what I did with you saying, once he gets going, I mean, it's just in a sprint, if you can get your body going uh, with, the, with the mass he has to throw around on his legs and his arm and his chest and biceps uh, and the power in his legs, once you get started, it looks like he's pulling away from everyone, but he's just not decelerating because his stride is so long and he's maintaining all of his power. Whereas the other guys have a much higher rate of uh, acceleration out the blocks, but they fade off their curve drops and his just keeps going up. Yeah. And so it's, it's quite predictable. There'll be, there'll be someone else that'll come around that maybe technically can get out of the blocks as well as they can. He's never the first one out of the blocks, right. uh, but he does a very good job mechanically in, in making those transitions between, you know, 10 meters and 30 meters. And then between, you know, 60 meters and the 80 meter mark. He does that outstandingly. So have you have you ever thought about coaching? I mean, you're breaking it down for me in such a way. You know, my coach at Howard was Bill Moultrie, and he yeah, would he, mm -hmm. he would be a technician the same way. He he'll tell you how many steps you're supposed to take to get to a certain point. Right. And he will drill it in you, get to there by that number of steps. But you know, hearing you you uh speak, it's almost like you're cut out of the same mindset. Track and field is not only just brute force, you have to you have to have technique and you have to have a plan. It seems you have to think it's a thinking it's uh, it's, it's, I mean, there's, there's no dummies out there running track. I guarantee you that everyone, they, they've got computers, a whole different type of computer, mechanical computer, physiological computer, cadence computer that's going all the time in order to do that. It's not by accident. No one, I tell people all the time, because one of the assumptions is I think that, I was six years old and running hurdles and be beating everybody as long as you as long as I've been alive and nothing could be further from the truth. I had to <laughs> literally fight and claw my way to the top. I mean, I didn't start winning until I was 20 years old. You know, I was always getting beat. I won a couple of races in high school, probably about five or six, other than just your little dual meets where there's no competition. But I only won about five or six races, you know, from the time I started running track at 10 years old until I was 20. I didn't win that much at all, but when wow. by the time I got to the top, I had so much knowledge and 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 uh, technical ability, and studying physics and engineering made it easy for me. When we start taking, you know, classes in in uh, mechanics and advanced mechanics and dynamics and all that, and I also had some really really good uh, mentors. Some of the some of the uh, some of the best uh, uh, track coaches, uh, kinesiologists have come from HBCUs. Dr. That's Walker. Right. Mm -hmm. who was down at, at, at NCCU, uh, a guy by the name of Dick Hill that went to Southern University. Then he went to New York, uh, New York U or 
and ended up being associate athletic director at MIT. Those guys have PhDs in kinesiology. And those are the two guys that, that I really counted on it. I was able to talk to about the event in a very different way than say a normal track coach that can get you in condition. Mm -hmm. uh, but I knew what I was gonna do. And I, I, I started doing interval, interval training, for example, my freshman, sophomore year in high school. So I understood the concept of doing intervals. When I first started doing them, 300 meters was a long, long way. <laughs> when I was when I was five, five, six, and and a hundred pounds, you know, right. 300 meters is a long way at that <laughs> point. But eventually, I got up to doing 600s and then thousands, and then multi, you know, a couple of thousands, a couple of 600s, while I was at Morehouse. So I, 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 I uh, almost like a a, a a a thoroughbred colt, you know, you run them and train them to be racers. Right. That's what I was able to do with my body and more mentally than physically. There's and that's, a what, that's what I'm gathering from what you're saying. It's more mental. Well, I've always known as a mental piece to it, but I don't think most folks are thinking of the technical until you're probably in the elite racers, I would imagine. Right. Uh, but it's very fascinating what you've been sharing with me. Uh, pivoting a little bit now, one of the things that's very impressive to me um, and I know a lot of people that I've spoken to, is the work, your advocacy work, since your professional career ended for, on behalf of athletes. Um, and you have a desire and a passion, it seems to me, to seeing others succeed. Um, could you talk a little bit about the genesis of that, if that's if the, the starting point for that effort, and what brought you to that realization that, hey, this is a way for me to give back? Um, I think I got put into it by mostly African-American men that were very much like my father, like the Dick Hills and the Dr. Walker, who actually became the first uh, uh, chief executive officer of the USOC. Um, and, and they taught me about leadership. I, I was familiar with it uh, because of my dad and him being a military officer and him enrolling with those guys. But uh, guys like Dr. Walker, introduced me to the business side of track and field, you know, put me on committees and things of that nature. And the first one I was ever on was the Law and Legislation Committee. And uh, I didn't know much about bylaws and I had never read any kind of legal documents and, you know, the structure of the organization. But they threw me in there because they knew that, you know, that was where the, the organization was breaded and, breaded and buttered. And they wanted me to understand that. Uh, Herb Douglas, who was a 1948 Olympian, who's 98 years old, he's my mentor to this day. Um, he won the bronze medal in the long jump in 1948. Uh, his mentor was Jesse Owens and Harrison Dillard. He was on the same team as Harrison Dillard, uh, um, uh, Frederica Whitfield's father, Mal Whitfield, the great Olympian. They were all on that 1948 team. And uh, he brought me into the world of philanthropy by uh, taking over a position, uh, the International Amateur Athletic Foundation and the Jesse Owens Award Trophy. I took that over back in the mid nineties when I moved here to Atlanta. So I've always had these African-American leaders, men like my father that said, oh, this guy's from Morehouse. He's, he's, a, he's a champion in track now. Let's you know show him the rest of the game. And so I've always had people that pulled me in and, 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 and showed me the, the opportunities that were not visible to me then, but they certainly put me in there and uh, helped me to prepare for those things. And I was able to take advantage of it. And so that's how I got into philanthropy. That's how I got into uh, leadership at the uh, 
it used to be called, uh, well, it was TAC, the Athletics Congress, before it was USA Track and Field. Um, and uh, then that's when I, I uh, uh, got my hands dirty working with drug testing, uh, uh, starting all those programs out of competition drug testing back after the year after the year of Ben Johnson. We legislated, structured, convinced convinced the uh, the entire uh, organization that we wanted to have drug testing in the sport of track and field, and we actually did it. So it was just being in the right place at the right time and really being mentored by African-American men. There weren't a lot of other people looking out for a brother back then, but these mm. black men were. And you know, the, Dr. Walker, he was a PhD, he was a college president, became the, the president of the US Olympic Committee. He, he was a president of tra US track and field. So I got to see these guys and what they did and how they did it and sit down and talk with them. And they said, you, you know, you go over here. This is what you're going to do. And this is why. So I was really, really lucky. And, and most of those guys came from HBCUs. Wow. They're HBCU people. So I was uh, mentored by the right people and, and amenable to that type of mentoring. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I never could imagine myself uh, having been involved with the organizations that I have. Uh, with the World Anti-Doping Agency and being the chairman of the United States Anti-Doping Agency and some of its most terrible times with Lance Armstrong and the Russian uh, debacle, cheating in Russians. I've, I've been the person who's been, uh, you know, the, the, the president of this organization. But uh, it, I've, I've just been grateful that I've been able to, to uh, be in the right place at the right time. Uh, but first of all, it was uh, making that decision to go to Morehouse. That's what that's what made everything happen. I, I will say this: uh, um, Howard University, HBCU family. I tell people all the time, the mecca changed me in in ways that in my midlife now I'm, I'm I'm 51 years old, and it's now that I'm looking back. I went to a very prestigious high school as well in Jamaica, which it was a proving ground. But when I got to Howard, being a foreigner and learning about the African American experience. Yeah. outside of um, all the other stuff we learned about the diaspora, you got, you got a true sense of what the family is like. And um, I hear it coming through in various sentences that you've shared, but you've said the word mentor. Now, I believe I counted seven times in the last five minutes. How important are mentors and, and more pointedly, when you look around today and you see our young brothers and sisters and you see how they are portrayed and things of that nature, I have two derivative questions. First, the importance of mentorship. And second, how do we get more people wanting to be mentors? Is it the introvert versus extrovert? Does it take a lot of effort or does it just take heart? I just think it takes heart. Uh, for example, I've gotten numerous young men into Morehouse, work with their families, with the moms and dads. And I've, uh, we raised uh, just last year, the year before, we raised like $20,000 for a guy who was going to get booted out. And uh, they got him back in and they told him, OK, if you get keep your average above three point, we'll keep the money flowing. He came back with a 3.5 and he's happy now. The family's happy uh, because he came from a family that didn't have much, you know didn't have much, you know, nothing at all, other than other than his, his, his other brothers and sisters. There was no family structure. So I think uh, mentor, mentorship is like, it's very similar to being a, 
uh, or what is, what is Charles Barkley called? Being a, a uh, uh, what's the word, uh, a hero or a legend. Um, it's voluntary, it's voluntary. It's not for everyone, uh, mm -hmm. but I've helped so many, so many kids and I've gotten help from so many areas for me. It's just a natural thing. I'm gonna show you which way to go, try to keep you out of trouble and uh, keep you from making, making the same kind of mistakes that are quite obvious that as a 17, 18, 22 year old kid, you just don't know. I've got a 25 year old kid. So I, I, I know what they have to go through. And I know, I know the, 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 the types of decisions that they have to make. And sometimes they make them in a vacuum. And so if I can help uh, uh, someone's parents and I get calls like all the time, my son or daughter is doing this. What do you think? Do you know anybody? What are they what thinking about going to law school? Uh, which I'm dealing with right now with my son. He's he two weeks ago, Dad, I think I want to go to law school. What? You know, he started out. <laughs> he's he 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 wanted to be a systems engineer and then he went into computer science and ended up getting his master's. And uh, you know, I he said, Dad, I Five, two years ago, it's like, I don't want to be stuck in a law office. What do you think I am, Perry Mason? <laughs> I want to go to law school. And so I put him in contact with people uh, who could tell him about what options are available for a lawyer. So I'll try to save anyone. And uh, it's almost, it's, it's to the point where you know you can't save everyone, but you save the ones that have the heart that you know are, 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 are very likely to make it to the, to the top. We can't yeah. do it all for everyone, but you know, I do it for as many as I can. And I'm glad, I'm happy to do it. I feel great when I help someone out in any way. Yeah. Right. Well, sir, a lot of us, I have watched you from a distance from I was a youngster. And um, that day I met you while we were there in Atlanta and we were at Monique Dozier's home. At the home. And I said, man, wait a minute, is that Edwin Moses? <laughs> and I had to take a picture with you. And I said, I was sitting there saying, this is Edwin Moses and I've, I've held you in that high regard, sir, from, from that very early, my early age coming up. Uh, we're close to time, but I wanna ask you, I'll be remiss if I didn't ask you two things. First is what's next for Dr. Edwin Moses? Well, I am working on uh, uh, working with my team. Uh, we're about 80% there in, in uh, financing. Uh, we're almost 100% there in financing a documentary that's going to come out probably in two more years. Um, I'm working, I've got four or 500 pages of transcript for my, what would be my first book. I've never written one oh, yet. Congratulations. Things, <laughs> things are still unfolding, you know, yeah. all the time, especially within the world of sports. Um, I was just selected to go on a special subcommittee uh, commission uh, for the House Energy uh, House Energy Commerce uh, Committee to set up to examine the uh, entire Olympic movement from top to bottom. I was just appointed to that uh, uh, by uh, Representative Pallone from, from New Jersey about, about 10 days ago. There's so much that's been happening in these last two weeks that uh, everyone probably missed it in the news. So mm -hmm. I'm going to put out a press release on that later and uh, really just doing some of the things over the last year, my last trip was February the 20th last year. I went to, uh, I went to Germany. I haven't left, left the city of Atlanta uh, except one time in my car since then. So I've had uh, 11 months to, to dig out a lot of the 
uh, opportunities and things that I've had in the can and on my business plan for 10 or 15 years. So I'm working on all these things right now. I'm, I'm so happy to be home wow. Wow. Uh, for, for quite a stretch. Between, between the US Open last September and February 20th of, of this of last year, I had uh, 10 different trips to Europe and another five domestic trips. Ten, and three of those trips were to Asia, separate trips. So between September and February. So I'm so happy to be at home. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. And I can't wait to read your book. I can't wait to read your book. I, um, I'll be one of the first persons. I'll drive back to Atlanta to get my <laughs> Well, the last question I want to ask you is one that I've asked every guest. Um, you know, we're in some interesting times today. And the purpose of my book, when I wrote it, was to try to inspire young people. Um, you know, I, I, the good Lord has been very good to me and my family over the years. And I've been able to rise to certain levels in higher education and seen some things. But what was interesting to me is folks would always ask me, how did you do it? And I don't think I did anything. As you said, I was in the right place at the right time. And I had the right mentors. But we're in a, a period where young people and young professionals um, inside this pandemic, uh, unemployment, the nation seems to be in turmoil, the world seems to be in turmoil. So what I've always asked my guests to close out is if you had any words of inspiration and hope that you could share with the listeners of this podcast, um, what, would, what would those words be? I think uh, the, the inspiration that we've seen in the last three months, uh, I think a lot of it, I think there's a lesson to be learned from what Stacey Abrams has been able to do to convince people to vote uh, during a pandemic, the mobilization and, and, and organization that we've had to have we've had to have in order to make that happen, not only in November, but also in January. And the amount of people that that we collectively uh, behind the scenes, uh, it's a greater, much greater universe than Stacey Abrams and all those people that work in voter registration and education. If we can somehow convince these young kids that you can do it, just like we, you know, we had to do it. And uh, uh, as, as uh, I think uh, Kamala said, and lots of other people said, it, you gotta vote like your life depends on it. I think we have to, we have to step back and, and really begin to to convince these kids that, look, we convinced people who 50, 60 years old that hadn't voted in their life to get out and vote and, and made them believe that something uh, dynamic was gonna happen, something good was gonna happen. And I just hope that uh, going forward when looking at education, that we can convince uh, a lot of the uh, uh, kids of color, whether you're Asian, black, white, Jewish, whatever, that don't have the opportunities, don't have the money, that live in marginal households with marginal incomes and marginal opportunity. We have to somehow convince them to do, sometimes do what people are asking you to do, even though you don't know the outcome mm. and, and, and be able to be on, on the upside of the opportunity. So I, I'm hoping that a lot of people learn that didn't vote, for example, that if they get out and vote, you know, you, you, you can make changes. And I think education and uh, whether you're a college level student or not, uh, whether you're someone who, who needs to go into a trade or allied health or IT, computer science, or a plumber, auto mechanic, whatever it may be, a salon, 
that uh, uh, the, 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 I hope that experience is able to, to help everybody know that, that we can do it and you can do it and not give up. Yeah. Well, Dr. Edward Moses, as we said, um, this, the hour would run by very, very quickly. <laughs> and um, I have been enlightened quite a bit by what you've shared with us today. And I wish you all the best with your future endeavors. I know some of the things that you're working on and they will be a benefit for a great number of people if they take the time to listen and to take the time to learn. Uh, sit still long enough to learn is what I always tell people. And um, I am so humbled yep. that you joined me today. We, we've been trying to do this now for some time, but to actually have it happen and you be my first guest for 2021. Sir, I just want to say thank you and um, keep doing what you're doing. And when that book is out, that is one reason for me to get back to Atlanta. And I greatly appreciate the time shared with us today, sir. I greatly appreciate okay. it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Hope you so to see much. you in Orlando. Hope to yes, see sir. you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Look forward to it. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our show for this week. Uh, our first video podcast, so to speak. Uh, we've heard from many of you. And um, what a better way to start it out than with Dr. Edwin Moses. So until next time, this is It's Easy, Son, your life lessons on your journey to your purpose. Until then, take care and God bless.